once upon a time, there were these fruits and vegetables that areas of Texas really specialized in and were famous for. The Pecos cantaloupe, the noonday onion. I've been living out by Pecos and I can barely find them in the summer. And I drive through those fields and nobody's growing them anymore. Mm. And at this point in time, I don't know if that's about lack of access to labor, lack of access of, of the infrastructure to get the product to market, but our fruit and vegetable production just seems to be withering. Yeah. Um, and it may be that labor costs in this country are too high. And if that's the case, that starts becoming a national security problem to me if we can't grow our own food here in Texas with as many diverse climates as we have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would definitely be a national security thing and to me, especially when you look at where, where California is headed with, with the water situation. You well, know. And one thing I didn't know, two facts, facts I didn't know about California about 80 to 90 percent of our fruit and vegetables as a country come from the Valley of California. And their water situation goes two ways. That valley on the historic record is subject to massive floods about every 150 years. There was a big one in the middle of the 1800s. And by big, I mean cows floating by flood, 10, 15 feet of water. Because you know, the valley is basically a big bathtub. It doesn't mm -hmm. drain very and on the geologic record, that flood was small. Um, they're bigger historically, and they're overdue for one. And I, and when I learned that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that happens. The whole country's in trouble. And here's Texas that could fill that void and put some of our national eggs in another basket. Welcome back to Gramps Place, where my guests and I discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victim, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. I talk with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. My guest in this episode is another Texas advocate and trailblazer who now has thrown her name into the proverbial hat to run for Texas Ag Commissioner. Susan Hayes is also an accomplished attorney. From her rural roots to big city experience, Susan was raised in Brownwood, Texas as the fifth generation of Texas ranchers. She and her husband currently cultivate hemp and hops on their land in Alpine considered to be one of the first recognized as a cannabis super lawyer in Texas, she is a proven legal advocate from abortion rights to voting rights. Let's meet Susan and hear her tell what made her decide to run for statewide office. Hello, Susan, and thank you for joining me here on Gramps Place. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself, your background. 
that kind of thing. Yeah, my name is Susan Hayes. I grew up in Brownwood, Texas, and I'm running for agriculture commissioner. I uh, grew up in a family that had been ranching in Texas since shortly after the Civil War in places like Jones County, Runnels County. My brother raises bison in Brown County now. Um, but I'm an attorney. I you know, left my small town and went to UT and got an education and went off law school on the East Coast, came back and have worked as a litigator and more recently as a lobbyist, but always kind of in around government. Always, you know, loved the Capitol building and loved trying to make policy. Um, about seven or eight years ago, I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to pursue a specialty in cannabis law because I thought it'd be about the most interesting thing I could do. Um, and, you know, started meeting folks, reading, spent weeks teaching myself the legal history of the criminalization of marijuana and also the scientific history of you know what what did we know and when and when was it used medically and when was it kind of crowded out um ironically by opioids uh and then what had happened every time the government had taken a long look of is this stuff good for you or not which the answer is yes they found out it was and then they criminalized it anyway by and large um and with that cannabis work i was working on a hemp bill in 2019 for clients and became embedded myself as the nerd lawyer who could help fine-tune uh, bill language and helped draft HB 1325, which legalized hemp in Texas. And when you're, when you're making policy and getting things done, there's really different phases to it. Passing sure. a bill is often just step one. After mm -hmm. that comes agency rulemaking. And particularly when it's a new topic to the people in the agency, they're kind of lost. So I got together with some other lawyers and lobbyists, and we did a couple teach-ins for staff at TDA and Dishes just to teach them how this works. What, you know, what is cannabis? How does it grow? What kind of things they need to worry about as regulators? And what things sure. should you not worry about at all? You know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And also through the rulemaking process, each agency gets to make rules. And I pretty quickly found TDA, uh, the Department of Agriculture, frustrating, if not outright weird. I already knew Sid Miller has a terrible reputation ethically. Okay. He, he'd had around the Capitol for many years. And as the, as 2019 wore on, uh, I just watching it sort of the open graft and corruption go down really pissed me off. And I, at the time, I would vent to some friends about, so help me God, I'm going to run against that guy. <laughs> you know, he's just doing this all wrong. Um, fast forward to this last fall, I had some people call me up and ask me to run. And thought about it for a couple of weeks. Um, I've helped people run for office, been doing politics since I was in college. And my rule is always no divorces, no bankruptcies, meaning don't run unless you can get through it financially. And the people around you and the people you love are supportive and they're, they understand what you're getting into because it's yeah. a struggle deal. That, that's very important because, uh, and, and it's ironic you bring that up because, uh, I mean, I know you know my story from my activism here in Texas and, and that I lost a son. So legalization of medical cannabis is very important to me. Uh, and you know the roadblocks we've had with Dan Patrick uh, for the last several sessions, and yeah, uh, 
even with just something as simple as decrim, you know, he won't have it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and he doesn't understand and, uh, it. Uh, being my background, being in, in commercial construction, I built schools for a living mm -hmm. and have for 30 years. I know a lot about where people's property taxes are going. Mm -hmm. So I had uh, made a pledge that I was going to primary Dan Patrick. Mm -hmm. But uh, my wife said, please don't. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, she didn't want to get in into the spotlight. So, uh, you know, otherwise last year I would have started making the rounds, you know, within the Republican realm and, and you know, where I needed to to get my name in the hat. But yeah. uh, she she I, I put it up to her relatively early on. It, it, almost at, right after the last election where he got reelected and she was like no and I said okay um yeah I'm a little surprised he didn't pull a serious primary opponent because you know the rumors have been some of the establishment Republicans and money Republicans wanted Patrick out that he's too radical and too much of an embarrassment and yeah. they were trying to recruit candidates and apparently failed well, uh, I would have loved to have been that one, you know, but uh couldn't get the wife on board. So like you say, if, if that that doesn't work, then yeah. it doesn't work, right? Yep. So yeah. obviously your your the corruption and whatnot's what made you decide to run. Yeah, that and you know, I sort of grew up in came of age in Texas and Texas politics in the late eighties and early nineties, and at the time the mindset in Austin was really focused on doing good policy, you know, and I worked at the Capitol in 1997 after I got out of law school. And even then, like every time somebody had a bill idea, the next question would be, what's the data on that? You know, will it really work? Think it through. And that culture of trying to do good in the world of government just seems completely gone. Yeah, uh, I've had some real horror story interactions working on cannabis issues at the Capitol with folks on the Republican side. And it finally sunk into me. They just don't particularly care about governing. They really are just about the next election. And the problem with that, you know, outside of cannabis issues and other things is, you know, the government's got to work. The electric grid has to work. Mm -hmm. and if you don't try to make sure it's going to function, it will, it can and will fall apart. Um, yeah. And particularly on the ag side, you know, I know enough about Texas history and political history to remember that it was government policies that lifted up rural Texas, starting with LBJ and rural electrification in the 30s. Mm -hmm. And uh, with checkoff programs that helped promote particular com commodities. And that's where, for example, all the peanut farmers agree or opt in to a program where they're taxed and that tax money is based on their production is used to promote that product. Um, and that's how certain crops like that got going in Texas, mm -hmm. uh, along with things like cotton gins, you know, that, that set up the processing infrastructure for cotton in Texas mm -hmm. and cooperative base. They were controlled in the community and all of ag has become big corporate ag, Wall Street profits, and that doesn't leave money back in small towns or in the no. hands of farmers and ranchers. Not at all. 
So tell us what changes to the Texas AG's office do you believe need to be made? Well, first, it's got to, there's going to be a good scrubbing. (laughs) (laughs) And I know from also from working with that office, there's some good people there and they're really frustrated and who are trying to do the right thing and the right job, but they don't have any support. So when you come into an agency, particularly one that's that dysfunctional, you got to start by assessing the situation and figuring out who's a good egg, who's a bad egg, bringing in the expertise when you need it, analyze, you know, get some analysis of what's happened with different programs, and then start figuring out how you pull each wagon out of the ditch. And I'll give you an example of that. When Ann Richards, you know, her first statewide office was treasurer, an office we don't even have anymore in Texas. And I got to hear her talk about tape, starting that office, like what happened when she won? You know, you wake up after the election and now what? They were still, she, they, they found checks in shoeboxes still. And, you know, this was in that piece. They had no real system for processing the money that came in the door. This guy, and I'm Warren Harding, which cracks me up that that was his name, had been treasurer since God was a child. And things just weren't functioning anymore. So she went through that process. Yeah. And, um, and also... And I always thought this was such a cheap, easy, nice way to make things better. Did simple things like ask art galleries to bring some art in on the walls because the place was so gray and dingy. It was depressing to be there um, and make it a better place to work. Then next, top policy priority. Um, also, I'll break this up a little bit in terms of time frame. The budgeting process in Texas begins long before session starts. So when I take office on January 1, there's already a draft budget for the Ag Commission that's been drafted. And I'm going to have to hit the ground running, working with the Finance Committee in the Senate and the Appropriations Committee in the House and try to get more money out of the state for the agency. It has been purposely starved with Miller as commissioner because the Republicans don't trust him with money. You know, taking whole programs away, like um, gas pumps used to be regulated by the Ag Commission, which sounds weird, but it goes back to weights and measures. You Mm -hmm. know, the Ag Commission making sure people weren't cheating on their scales. And that ended up being applied to a bunch of different areas, not just fruits and vegetables. Um, And then engage on the budget process, this while simultaneously doing the house cleaning. Policy priority, rural hospitals. Who knew that office had a rural hospital program or a rural economic development program? And the backstory on it is that that both of those used to be part of standalone agencies, and they got folded into the Ag Commission in the late 90s, and they've been kind of rotting in the basement. That makes sense. And there is some money in the budget already where some good things could happen. Um, And it is... Many of y'all may know or may not, if you live in an urban area, rural hospitals have been shutting down left and right. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've spent the, when the pandemic hit, my husband and I got the, got out of the city and came to Alpine where we have some land. And out here, there's three counties that share one hospital with 25 beds and three ventilators. There's just no bandwidth to deal with anything. And we're lucky that there is, is even a hospital in the county. A lot of rural counties don't even have a hospital. Um, and then 
the big policy issue that, and this was a big motivation for me to run and talk about it and use that bully pulpit of campaigning and being an office holder is cannabis law reform. And that Texas is just doing it all bass backward. Yeah. They're over-regulating here and they're under-regulating there and they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand it. And it's really not serving anybody. And they're leaving way too much up to the rule makers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, that's because legislatively, nobody with any power understands it. So they're punting. Yeah. You know, and then the, the rule makers don't really understand it. You know, and I do give some people ag really did try to engage and learn. But they also, um, I think, didn't use their power, what power they had as a Republican incumbent to make it better. I was trying to push them to get on USDA over um, reclamation of hot hemp. Mm -hmm. You know, USDA could have allowed us to, if their hemp crop goes hot, simply um, extract the THC, destroy it, and still get get some value out of your crop. Sure. And instead, we've got a destruction rule. That was completely the federal agency's decision. Um, And Miller was supposedly buddies with the then Secretary of Ag Commissioner, Sonny Perdue. And we got no love for that political connection. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was obvious. Yeah. What benefits do you think that you can help bring to the Texas farmer? having an agency that's looking after their economic well-being um you know there once upon a time i think the agency was looking for places for farmers to get into different crops different um livestock that might bring a better profit a livability if you will mm-hmm. uh, and i am not enough of an agronomist or an economist to fully understand the answer to the problem of why can't people make a living off 10 acres of land anymore if it's decent farmland um if you could grow high quality hemp you could mm-hmm. uh, with that much acreage but ag doesn't offer much help and where usda offers help it's pretty buried on a website ag also I think doesn't have a good relationship with Texas A&M AgriLife. That's part of their job of guiding farmers county by county and doing research. Um, and I'll also know the problem I want to solve or answer. I want to what I've seen as a change in the ag industry. Once upon a time, there were these fruits and vegetables that areas of Texas really specialized in and were famous for the Pecos cantaloupe the noonday onion. I've been living out by Pecos and I can barely find them in the summer. And I drive through those fields and nobody's growing them anymore. Mm. And at this point in time, I don't know if that's about lack of access to labor, lack of access of of the infrastructure to get the product to market, but our fruit and vegetable production just seems to be withering. Um, And it may be that labor costs in this country are too high. And if that's the case, that starts becoming a national security problem to me if we can't grow our own food here in Texas with as many diverse climates as we have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would definitely be a national security thing and to me, especially when you look at where, where California is headed with, with the water situation. You well, know. And one thing I didn't know, two facts, facts I didn't know about California, 
about 80 to 90% of our fruit and vegetables as a country come from the Valley of California. And their water situation goes two ways. That valley on the historic record is subject to massive floods about every 150 years. There was a big one in the middle of the 1800s. And by big, I mean cows floating by flood, 10, 15 feet of water. Because you know, the valley is basically a big bathtub. It doesn't mm -hmm. drain very and on the geologic record, that flood was small. Um, they're bigger historically, and they're overdue for one. And I, and when I learned that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that happens. The whole country's in trouble. And here's Texas that could fill that void and put some of our national eggs in another basket. And there yeah. seems to be no real effort to help people coming yeah. out of that. Department. Now that's definitely an area that could could use some attention in my opinion. Uh, Pardon this short break for a word from our sponsors. Hey y'all. Are you enjoying the guests and subjects Gramps is bringing you each week? Did you know Gramps does this all on his own? No production team and no producers. Just Gramps. Please consider making a monthly contribution to help Gramps continue to do what he does in an effort to educate, agitate, and motivate millions to get involved. It is as easy as clicking on the link in the show description that says, support this podcast. It can be as little as 99 cents per month. As always, Gramps thanks you for listening and for your support. Welcome back to Gramps Place, the podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about all things of public interest. I got to ask you, uh, it's a little bit off topic, but Go for uh, it. I got to ask you just because I know you've been deeply involved in the whole Delta 8 and smokable yeah. hemp ban yeah. and all that hoopla. Where are we at on those two subjects nowadays? Yeah. In fact, I was just working on the smokable hemp case a little bit today. There, and, and this is going to get legal nerdy, but part of it is what Ken Paxton has been doing with the AG's office and positions they've been taking in cases where people bring constitutional challenges. The smokable hemp case, we got an injunction uh, at the trial court, a uh, temporary injunction, and then we got a permanent injunction. The AG appealed it. The AG is taking the position that anytime they appeal something, and, and formally docketing an appeal is a simple two-page document. It's nothing. Yeah. That that automatically stays an injunction, which is crazy to me, because if that's true, then the government can routinely violate our constitutional rights, and there's really not anything practically we can do about it, because appeals take months and months. Mm -hmm. um, they appealed the smokable hemp case directly to the Texas Supreme Court, skipping over the Austin Court of Appeals, which you can do when it is a case challenging the constitutionality of a law. And the state's brief got filed today. I was reading through it a couple hours ago. Um, it's set for oral argument on March 22nd. And we can expect an opinion from the Texas Supreme Court probably in the summer, but it could be later than that. The Delta 8 case got an injunction from a trial court, and they are raising really different legal issues than the smokable case. 
Um, yeah. And in some ways, I think they've got a harder row to hoe because Delta 8 is gets people high and smoking CBD doesn't. Yeah. And there's sort of an edgy factor to that. The government has long had the power to restrict what people can do to get intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on appeal to the Austin Court of Appeals. And that'll probably take a, you know, a year and a half, two years. And as long as they keep their injunction in place, Delta 8 can still be grown or still be sold. Um, it does get grayer and more complicated for people out there on both issues because you can have a law, but you also have to enforce it. And I went round and round on this argument during session as I watched the Delta 8 fight blow up a little hemp law cleanup bill I was working on that had a dozen small good things in it that all died because of the Delta 8 fight. You know, the conservative senators were thumping their chests and wanted to ban it. And my private response to a couple of them when I got in conversations is, y'all can't even enforce this. I mean, if it is already illegal, and Dishes set was saying began saying in May of the session that it was, mm-hmm. Dishes Department of State Health Services, you don't have the lab testing capability in your forensic crime labs to tell the difference between eight and nine. And you don't really have the, the bandwidth in those forensic crime labs to tell the THC potency at scale. They can do it every now and then, but they can't do hundreds of samples. Yeah. Because Texas habitually underfunds its crime labs. Mm-hmm. Even while we're blowing a billion dollars sending DPS down at the border to twiddle their thumbs. Yeah. And pull me over for a speeding ticket if you go more than two miles of the speed limit, which they will do out here in the Big Bend. So if y'all come out here, do not speed, whatever you do. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, not only most of our urban counties, but many of the smaller counties are over prosecuting people for low-level marijuana possession. The whole thing's kind of dumb. And that's part of what I mean when I say Texas is going about it all bass awkward. Um, too much performative politics with Delta 8. Uh, and that all makes this next election incredibly important. You know, if Dan Patrick is defeated in November, we're going to rock and roll on medical cannabis and legalization bills. Um, and same if Beto beats Greg Abbott. I mean, strategically, the lieutenant governor's office is more important. Mm-hmm. But having a statewide leader who really understands the issue, whether that's me as ag commissioner or Beto as governor, will be a sea change. Mm-hmm. It'll be somebody with power who can sit down senators and representatives and explain to them with some force behind them. Yeah. Uh- you know, the, the, the mind-boggling thing for me, and you know I've talked to several people, um, and something uh, Lisa Pittman said that stuck stuck in my mind is, is Texas don't really need the money, so the revenue factor doesn't really apply. And it, I never I never really thought about it from that perspective before, you know, <laughs> but I can't help but look at the headlines coming out of states like mm-hmm. Illinois. Mm-hmm. And and look at look at the population in comparison from Illinois to Texas and just yeah it's mind boggling <laughs> moment early in the pandemic where some of those state leaders were and not Patrick and Abbott necessarily but the chair of finance who's now retired 
and the comptroller were privately asking those questions. What would it look like if we legalized? How much money? And I was working with uh, Vicente Cedarberg, a law firm in Denver, and they have a cannabis economist on staff, and they did a serious analysis of it. The, the thoughtful number they came up with is a billion dollars in revenue per biennium if you yeah. tax it at a reasonable rate. And mm -hmm. their white paper had the appropriate warnings of don't go crazy and overtax it because then the black market just flourishes, see Washington State or California. Mm -hmm. You've got to tax it at a reasonable amount and you can still have a billion dollars. Now, that is nothing to sneeze at, but the overall state budget is about $114 billion. Yeah. Um, it's it because we're so big, it's not a huge dent, but it still would go a long way because it's money they could play with. So what if that went to medical research? What if that went to and Colorado has done this? I think it's really smart. It just PSAs to kids about why they shouldn't consume cannabis until their brains are more developed unless yeah. they're doctor supervision. Colorado did that, and the rates of marijuana used by teenagers dropped after they legalized. Mm -hmm. And that's a great argument for us about why legalization doesn't mean kids are going to be smoking dope in the streets and screwing at intersections, because that's the image some of these conservatives have in their mind. Sure. And, and I think, you know, that being said, uh, the, the simple fact of whether Colorado did that program or not, I think there's going to be some offfall just because. You know, the largest percentage of teens that are doing it are doing it for one reason, because it's cool. Yeah, exactly, because you're not supposed to be doing it. That <clears throat> Just like smoking cigarettes was for us when, you know, I mean. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite Molly Ivins quotes was in an essay she was asked to write about her favorite place in Texas. And her answer was Lubbock, Texas, because in Lubbock, they know what sin is. And that's important, because <laughs> then you know what to go out and do. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Demystify it. Educate people and you know, the, be reasonable about it. Yeah. The first time I met uh, with Lynn Stuckey, my representative. Yeah. In in Austin was uh, in in the 2017 or 2019 session, and uh, that that was the first time I actually got involved in in lobbying down in person and. Uh, went both to Austin and D.C. that year. And, uh, but the first time I was talking to him, you know, he, he was all, being a veterinarian, he threw out, you know, being a veterinarian uh, mm -hmm. by trade, you know, we, we, we know that we have all these tools in the toolbox for to use when an animal's sick. But sometimes those tools don't work and we have to venture outside that box. He said, so I'm not against the idea of, of medical marijuana. He said, but, you know, we got to be careful. Yeah, that unknown scares me. And, and, and I, as soon as he said that, I was intrigued. So I'm really, that piqued my interest. And he says, we got to be careful because, uh, you know, we don't want to do it to where everybody's doing it. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Stuckey, what you fail to comprehend within that statement is one simple fact. Anybody who wants to already is. Mm -hmm. You're yep. not stopping anything. Yeah. The arrest records in the state of Texas prove that. 
two million Texans admit it to Gallup polls that mm-hmm. they use cannabis regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of how I pivot that discussion is what are they using? This is about safe access. Mm-hmm. And product, you know, is not adulterated or doesn't have pesticides in it because it came out of the black market. That's the other aspect that I try to push when I talk to lawmakers is, you know, not only are we missing out, but we don't know the people that are doing it, that are going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're ingesting. Yeah. Yep. After the 2017 session, I was lobbying. I'd been lobbying for a company from Nevada. And they made me their general counsel, and I spent about eight months living in Vegas as Las, as Nevada was rolling out their adult use regulations, which was like drinking from a cannabis law fire hose, but it was an excellent, excellent training ground for me. And it also was a lot of fun to be in a state that not only had legal adult use, but also they have great labeling rules there. They don't just test and label THC and CBD content. You have to label with all dominant cannabinoids in your product and dominant terpenes. Good. And it was great. And I'll you know, tell some stories on myself. I was never particularly into smoking dope in high school as much as I was a hellraiser because the shitty Mexican skunkweed of the 1980s just made me go to sleep. And that was no fun. You know, it just wasn't my thing. Um, but when my husband and I were out in Vegas and you had that, packaging and labeling you know we were able to try different things out and the thing i learned about myself is myrcene which is a dominant terpene in most of the cannabis that's on the market is a sedative and it particularly knocks me out um but limonene pinene and some of those other terpenes just work great um and and i did tell the following story to even a couple of republican members when the context made it appropriate and I was trying to explain what this world could look like. That I bought one of my favorite products was Baby J's. It looked like an Altoids tin, and it was six half joints, half pre rolls, half gram pre rolls. Mm-hmm. And they had a variety pack where you could try three different, three varieties um, of cannabis. And you know, and that half grams, as I explained to the uninitiated, the capital is a little bit like splitting a bottle of wine with somebody. It's just a good thing to split with one other person. My husband, unlike me, who I grew up with in Brownwood, was much more of a connoisseur over the years and has a much higher tolerance than I do. Okay. Well, we split one of these half-gram pre-rolls one night and sit down, watch TV. Whatever I had been working on that day had just really vexed me. I was trying to figure out how to make an argument and a brief. And I sat down, and within five minutes, my brain was solving the problems of the day. Get out a piece of paper, write out how I'm going to you know, make that argument. And I looked up at my husband to say, man, this stuff is great. He was slumped down in his chair, could barely keep his eyes open. He was so <laughs> and I just died laughing. I just said, you know, dude, you're stoned. But I was able to go get that package, turn it over, and learn, learn my lesson. Oh, limiting, mm-hmm. good for me. Uh, and the joke is, you know, Richard loves it too. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a legalized market should look like, where consumers can make educated choices. Yeah, yeah, where you can actually take a look, see what works, try it out, you know, the, the whole bit. I mean, re- what we have now is a guessing game. Yeah. And 
completely. You're guessing that what you have this time and what you get next time is going to be something different. So different. I'm guessing game starts all over. You know, we learned, and this seems like a million years ago because the pandemic has warped the time-space continuum. Certainly. But the Ivali um, crisis that happened about three years ago mm-hmm. with black market vapes that were adulterated with vitamin E acetate, and it burned out people's lungs and killed some people. Mm-hmm. That's what the black market brings you if the government isn't stepping up to the plate and making sure what's out there for consumers is tested and safe. Yeah. It's too unknown and kind of back to our crime labs and what law enforcement ought to be worried about. Um, I made friends with some of the crime lab people when I was working on the hemp bill because I wanted to understand their worlds and what they were capable of. Um, and at, and this has now been about four years. One of them told me that he hadn't seen it yet coming in to Harris County, but his uh, counterparts in other states were seeing all kinds. You can hide anything in a vape pen. It can be methamphetamine. It can be fentanyl. You can sell it as something else, but it's dosed with something else. And um, the dangerous like fentanyl. And it's a lot harder to test for a mystery substance than it is to test for something known for these labs. And our labs aren't prepared for whatever mystery substance is coming into the port of Houston from China in a vape pen. And that's terrifying to me. That's exactly how somebody's going to get hurt. That's exactly how a lot of people are going to get hurt. Yeah. Uh, and you, you're talking about a can of worms that I don't think anybody in the state of Texas, as far as governmental office holders, I'm speaking. Yeah. In the state of Texas or on the national scene has really thought about the magnitude that that could be. Yeah. Nope. They have not wrapped their head around it. Because uh-huh. of, of not only the the states like Texas that don't have a legal regulated market, but the states that have a way over over-regulated market and way overtaxed market so that the black market is still thriving. Like California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the legal market there is starting to revolt because of the taxation. It's so high. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's crazy. Even Illinois is crazy. Yeah. Uh, you the know, black market can't survive as well in, in Illinois, I don't think. Um, and, you know, one thing Texas has done right with both their hemp and medical cannabis program is local governments don't get to pick and choose and stick their hand out the way they can in California and Nevada and other states. Yeah. You know, weed's legal in California, but only in about 30% of jurisdictions can you buy it. Mm-hmm. And that creates some weirdness in the market. And it also creates this overtaxation when the local governments are taking a cut on top of the state government. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and when you overregulate and overtax, you also, you know, a lot of them are, are you hear the law enforcement side argue all the time uh, how, well, you know, we legalized it. And look, the black market's still flourishing. We're busting illegal grows left and right, you mm-hmm. know. Well, duh, the, they're no longer going to grow it in Mexico and bring it across the border when they've got a much easier chance of not being caught or messed with doing it in a legal state. It's also a failure to enforce the programs they've got. I mean, and, and I'm yeah. blanking on, I think Politico had a story about 
illegal grows in Oklahoma and cartels, not Mexican necessarily, but Asian coming in and growing. Well, the state knows who's got a license. They can map that out. It's not hard when you see a grow that doesn't match a place with the license to go bust it. They're just not putting the resources into it. Mm-hmm. And that hurts the legal market and the legal, and the, the good players who are trying to do things right. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a plan to weed out the bad actors. A lot of that, uh, of course, this is just my opinion, but a lot of those illegal grows that are in Oklahoma right now are supplying Texas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. That, we're supporting that that problem that Oklahoma has. <laughs> with, just with somebody who called me wanting help should the licensing open up for medical. And I said, and I was kind of explaining the dynamic around Texas and, you know, and New Mexico is going online adult use in April. And I said, you know, the place to put a dispensary is JAL, New Mexico, because it's only about 30 minutes from the oil field. (laughs) And everybody in Midland and Odessa can just cruise right on over. Um, That, then I'm sure there'll be a bunch of dispensaries there and they'll make a ton of money until Texas legalizes. Same as Trinidad, Colorado has. Mm -hmm. And Trinidad's about to take it in the nose as New Mexico goes legal. Oh, yeah, that's going to hurt them. Yeah. (laughs) Without a doubt. Well, tell us what is the one thing that you feel gives you the edge over other candidates for the Texas AG's office? In terms of knocking out Miller, and and also I do have a primary opponent, the Democratic primary, Um, it's one... Also, I'll take it primary person in the general. It's because I've been around the block. I've been doing campaigns and politics since I was in college. And, you know, winning an election is a math game, um, math problem. Where do you, you know, how do you get to 50% plus one? Who are the constituency? And how do you appeal to them? So on the Democratic side, part of what I'm saying to voters is I'm best positioned to meet, to beat Miller because I grew up in the country. I can talk to people from rural Texas. I get rural Texas. Um, I policy wonk on it for fun. That's why I've kept up with what's happening with rural hospitals and ag and whatnot over the years. Um, and I've, you know, so that I have that crossover appeal that can peel off enough votes to beat him in the general election. In 2018, his Democratic opponent came within about five points of beating him. Mm-hmm. And she only raised, she did not, she did not quite raise half a million dollars because it does take money. I mean, you know, I'll tell you one thing about running statewide in Texas, you always underestimate how big this state is. Yeah. And how many subcultures you got to talk to and how many miles you're going to put on your pickup and Southwest Airlines flights to get around the state. Um, and you've got to be able to be conversant in San Angelo and the Fifth Ward in Houston if you're really mm-hmm. a race in the state. And I can do that because of where I've spent my life, um, which is to say all over the place. And then on the, and I, ha- I will say, I've been watching the Republican primary, just eating popcorn, watching James White go after Sid Miller. Um, and there's a third guy on the Republican side, a guy named Kerry Council, who's a rancher from East Texas. Finally got to see him at a candidate forum and seems like a perfectly nice guy. But I'm not convinced 
that James White can beat Miller in a Republican primary. Um, that was part of why I ran, is I wanted there to be somebody else who could take a good swing at him yeah. and knock him out and build that agency back up. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, tell our listeners where they can find your campaign or how they can get involved if they want to donate to the cause or do some door knocking and all that good stuff for you. Please, please, yeah, my website is Hayes, the number four, ag, so H-A-Y-S, there's no Ian e Hayes, couldn't afford it, number four, ag.com. Um, it's still getting built out, but there's an email address on there. We'll get a form up there where people can sign up and give us some details about what they can do in short order. There's also a donate button on there. And one thing that has changed dramatically about politics in the last 15 years is online has made small donations really matter in a way that they didn't before. You know, when I was working campaigns in the 90s, you couldn't get to any reasonable number unless you did a lot of in-person visits and fundraisers and talking to rich people. Mm -hmm. And little dollars add up quickly, and it's possible to do that because of the online situation. So every little bit helps. Um, if people have locations for a good, uh, I call them ranch signs, the four by eights that go by on the side of the highway, as opposed to yard signs, also interested in hearing that. And, um, and spread the word, talk to people. You know, the cannabis community has a bad rap of, yeah, they, people care about the issue, but they won't get out and vote on it. And yeah. I hope selection proves that wrong that people will get out on vote on it because we this elect with this election we have a chance to really change things in Texas on cannabis law by winning yeah. some of these statewide races. I, I couldn't agree more. Well I want to thank you again for, for taking time out of your evening to join me and, and tell our listeners who you are and what you stand for. Well I appreciate you having me. Anytime. You, you bet, anytime. Grant's place. Where Gramps and his guests discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing here in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victims, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. Gramps talks with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. Be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts or visit GrampsPlace.net today. And as always, thank you for listening to Gramps Place.